Let's open our Bibles to the book of Romans chapter 11. And we read verse 21, studied that far down. We'll pick up with verse 22. Romans 11 verse 22. Possibly we better read verse 21 to get the connection. It says, For if God spared not the natural branches, take heed lest he also spare not thee. The natural branches, as we've been discussing, are the Jews. And uh, when he says, Take heed lest he also spare not thee, he would be referring to the Gentiles who had been grafted into the natural branches. And so we find that uh, because of that, verse 22, Behold therefore the goodness and severity of God on them which fell severity, but toward thee, the Gentiles, goodness. If thou continue in his goodness, otherwise thou also shalt be cut off. The Jews as a nation, Israel as a nation, had been cut off from the blessings of God, and those same blessings had been turned to the Gentiles. And they were cut off because of unbelief. And we were grafted into the blessings of the Jewish nation and people, even though we were undeserving and we were like a wild olive branch. We did not deserve to be in the fullness of that vine. And so we're going to read on down and find out the remainder of our lesson here. And verse 23, And they also, the, the Jews, if they abide not still in unbelief, shall be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. He will bring them back into their uh, national blessings. For if thou wert cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and were grafted uh, contrary to nature into a good olive tree, how much more shall these, these Jews, which be the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? So what we're seeing here is that for a while the Jews have been cut off. And the times of the Gentiles from now until uh, the last Gentile person is saved, during this day and age of grace, these times have been freely given to the Gentiles. And the uh, commission that Jesus left with the apostles, they were to preach first to the Jews, and then after they rejected the gospel, Paul says, Lo, we turn to the Gentiles. And it seems that during this day and age of grace that Israel has been blinded to the fact that Jesus is the Savior, the Messiah. And uh, there will be a time that it will be different. And if we were grafted in to their blessings, then much more when they return, when they repent, they'll be grafted in again into their own olive tree. Now then, verse 25 and 26 shows us the mystery and helps us to understand this mystery. For I would not, brethren, that ye should be ignorant of this mystery, lest ye should be wise in your own conceits. That blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. They seem to be nationally, spiritually blinded. Now, notice it says blindness in part has happened to Israel. Even though it's in part, there's a remnant being saved even during the uh, day and age of grace. We call this the uh, age of grace the dispensation of grace. But there's still being a remnant saved during that time. But there will be the fullness of the 
salvation of the Jews in the future, and their eyes will be opened, and they will see uh, the Lord and, and believe on Him. But notice here it says that blindness in part has happened to Israel, and how long will that be that that blindness will uh, be upon them? Until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. Now, until the very last person during these times of the Gentiles, these are the times of the Gentiles, and we'll continue on over into the tribulation period. But when the last of the Gentiles are saved, then the Jews are going to be uh, repentant. Their blindness will cease to be. There will be a time that God will pour out upon them, and we'll refer to it in a minute, the spirit of grace and supplications, and they will repent, and they'll believe on the Lord. But until that time comes, they're blinded nationally. Until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. Verse 26, And so all Israel shall be saved, as it is written, There shall come out of Zion the deliverer, and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. Let's stop there a moment. Let's look back in the book of uh, Joel, chapter 2, and verse 32. It says, And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be delivered. For in Mount Zion... And in Jerusalem shall be deliverance, as the Lord has said, and in the remnant whom the Lord shall call. Now, we know that Peter uses this even on the day of Pentecost to, to open up the way of salvation to the Gentiles, that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. But then it goes on to say, For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem shall be deliverance, as the Lord has said, and in the remnant whom the Lord shall call, and he's referring to a future day, just as two things were referred to uh, in uh, Peter's sermon on that day of Pentecost. Another passage of Scripture that will help us to understand is the book of Zechariah, uh, chapter 12, and beginning with verse 9. It shall come to pass in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. So he's talking about a day during the tribulation in which the Lord will destroy the nations that come against Jerusalem. And I will pour upon the house of David and upon, now look, and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplications. And they shall look upon me whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son, and shall be in bitterness for him, as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. In that day there shall be a great mourning in Jerusalem, as the mourning of uh, Hadramon in the valley of Megiddo. And the land shall mourn every family apart. Now notice how that it comes down to the families and individuals of the houses. And the land shall mourn every family apart, the family of the house of David apart, and their wives apart, be the individuals, the family of the house of Nathan apart, and their wives apart, the family of the house of Levi apart, and their wives apart, family of Shimei apart, and their wives apart, all the families that remain, every family apart, and their wives apart. Let's read verse 1 of the 13th chapter. In that day there shall be a fountain open to the house of David and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanness. So we find that there's going to be a day of national repentance for Israel. And that's what Paul is referring to in the book of Romans when he says that 
So all Israel shall be saved. It is written, There shall come out of Zion, back in Romans now, eleven twenty six, the deliverer, and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. He's talking about a future time. For this is my covenant unto them, when I shall take away their sins. As concerning the gospel, Paul says, they are enemies for your sakes. But as touching the election, they are beloved, or beloved, for the Father's sake. In other words, it's because of them that, and they're enemies in the sense that they're they are not uh, believers in Christ. As for the gospel's sake, they are enemies. As concerning the gospel, they do not believe the gospel now. But as touching the election, God has not forgotten them. They are beloved for the Father's sake. For the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. God doesn't change his mind, and God has a purpose to save them in the day of their uh, repentant hearts when he will pour out upon them the spirit of grace and supplications. He says in verse 30, For as ye in time past have not believed God, the Gentiles had not believed in times past, yet have now obtained mercy through their unbelief, because they are in unbelief, God has extended his mercy to you and I. Notice the word mercy is used many times. We've obtained mercy through their unbelief. Even so, have these also now not believed that through your mercy they also may obtain mercy. For God hath concluded them all in unbelief that he might have mercy upon all. So God has shown that he is merciful both to the Jews and Gentiles. All are under sin. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And we see that these things refer to not only our present mercies and blessings that have been bestowed upon us as Gentile believers, but they're still reserved for Israel, His mercy, so that all may obtain mercy, and that He might have mercy upon all. We don't understand all this, do we? We get an idea of what God is talking about. We see that the fullness of the Gentiles will come in, and God will finish his purpose concerning the Gentiles, but also he has a future purpose for the Jews as well when Jesus comes. These things that we've referred to in Joel and Zechariah have reference to the coming of Christ in the future, when Israel will believe on him and look on him whom they pierced and mourn for him as for an only son. Look in verses... 33 through 36. And you'll see seven great things here concerning the wisdom and knowledge and judgments of God. And let's read them. It says, O the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. We don't understand His wisdom and knowledge, but we do see that that it's the depth of His riches that's manifested. And it says, how unsearchable are his judgments. We cannot search out his judgments. We don't know on what basis he judges and that he does things, his actions. His ways are past finding out. And then it says in verse 34, For who hath known the mind of the Lord, or who hath been his counselor? We don't know God's mind. We don't know God's thoughts. We don't know God's ways. And did he counsel with any of us to find out what he should do or should not do? Back in the book of Job, let me see. You know, Job had all of his accusations, and he cried out against God, uh, even though for a while he 
you might say, maintained his integrity, yet he came to the place that he finally questioned God's dealings with him. And it says in chapter 38, Then the Lord answered Job out of a whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkeneth counsel by words without knowledge? Job didn't have any knowledge. He says, Gird up now thy loins like a man, and I will demand thee, and answer thou me. He's speaking to Job. He said in verse 4, Where wast thou when I laid the foundations of the earth? Declare if thou hast understanding. He said, Job, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? If you have any understanding of this, you just get up and tell it. And then he goes on, Who hath laid the measures thereof, if thou knowest? Or who hath stretched the line upon it? Did you have someone to survey it before I laid the foundations of it? Stretch the line? Whereupon, verse 6, are the foundations thereof fastened? Do you understand how that this earth is fastened upon its foundations? And he says this, listen. Or who laid the cornerstone thereof? Job, of course, was like most of us. We do not understand fully the things of God. We would think when God speaks of foundations of the earth and the measures of it and the line upon it and the cornerstone that's being laid, we'd think it would be like a, a square or oblong building, rectangle, and it would be have a foundation under it and it would be seated upon something that is solid. But God just hung it up in space, didn't he? Set it upon its axis, let it revolve, and uh, he has it. That's the foundations of the earth. It's not like we would ordinarily think, but God has it fully under control. And he says, Job, do you understand all these things? That's why Paul says in Romans uh, 11, verse 34, For who hath known the mind of the Lord, or who hath been his counselor, not only concerning his creation and concerning all things that is in the mind and counsel and plan and purpose of God, but especially who have known the mind of the Lord concerning the salvation of Gentiles and of Jews and of his blessings being withdrawn from Israel uh, for a while and blindness and, uh, happening in part to Israel. And then later on, their eyes being opened and they will look on him whom they pierced. We don't understand God's purpose and plan in all of this. And that how that we were included uh, and our blessings come upon us as Gentile believers through the Jewish uh, plan itself. But that's the way God has planned it. It says in verse 35, Or who hath first given to him, and it shall be recompensed unto him again. It says in verse 36, concluding these things, For of him, and through him, and to him are all things. He is the source of all things. Through him, they come from him. He's the channel of all things. And it's for his glory to him are all things. Look at that. Of him and through him and to him are all things. To whom be glory forever. Amen. So, we have a great uh, passage of Scripture in this 11th chapter of the book of Romans. And I'm sure that there's still... Uh, a lot of things wherein we are ignorant, as Paul says, of this mystery, verse 25, tells us that we should not be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own conceits. If we 
for a moment did not understand that God was going to restore the Gentile, uh, the Jews and that their blindness was a blessing to us until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in, then we might be have a tendency, verse 25, to be wise in our own conceits. And therefore, we would really, instead of being promoting the gospel among the Gentiles, we would be so proud and so haughty and so uh, self-conceited that we would probably remove the blessings from us instead of continuing the blessings upon us. And that's what Paul is saying here. He's showing that the blindness that's happened in part to Israel should be a lesson to us to help us to realize that it's by God's mercy and grace that we're included and that we might obtain mercy in His plan of salvation. Now then, all of these things sum up to something that we want to get to in the 12th chapter of the book of Romans. In Romans chapter 12, let me give you briefly five things that you'll find here. In Romans 12.1, there's the sacrifice of the believer. And in Romans 12.2, there's going to be the separation of the believer. And verses 3 through 8 is going to be the service of the believer. And in verses uh, 9 through 16, 9 through 16, the sincerity of the believer. And then... Verses 17 through 21, the social life of the believer. So let's notice, first of all, Romans 12, 1. Paul says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. Isn't that what he's been dealing with all, the, all along? God's mercies to the Jews, God's mercies upon the Gentiles. If you go back to the first chapter, you'll find that he begins showing us the mercies of God in bringing about our salvation. And all through the previous 11 chapters, that's why he says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. We said the word therefore connects us with all that has gone before in his writings here in the book of Romans. Just as Romans, we had three of them. Remember I gave them to you? Here's one of them. And the other one, the previous one, was Romans 8, verse 1. And then before that, Romans 5, verse 1. Let's go back and pick them up. Romans 5, verse 1, he says, Therefore, being justified by faith. Up till that time, he was proving that we would be justified by faith and not by the works of the law and saved by grace through faith. And he says, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. He goes on in, in chapters uh, 5 and 6 and 7. And then in chapter 8, he says, There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. He says, we're not condemned any longer. It is Christ that died. Who is he that condemneth? We're justified. We're free from the law. <coughs> we're justified by faith. Therefore, we're not under condemnation. And now he says, in Romans 12, verse 1, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. Are not all of these things the mercies of God that have been bestowed upon us? And he says, because of these mercies, and looking back upon all that's written in the previous 11 chapters, he says, I beseech you, I plead with you, therefore, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. <clears throat> now, this means bodily. This means holy living. This has to do with our being. And not a dead sacrifice, 
as in the Old Testament, they presented sacrifices that were slain. They presented those to God. But we're to present ourselves because we are alive as living sacrifices. That means that we should be willing to give ourselves bodily, physically, mentally, our time and our talents, our service to the Lord as a living sacrifice because He has made us alive. Now then, Jesus presented Himself a dying sacrifice, His body a dying sacrifice, but the believers to present Himself a living sacrifice. You turn to the book of uh, Hebrews. If you don't have time to turn, listen to it carefully. It says in the 13th chapter, verse 15, by Him, by Christ, therefore let us offer the sacrifice of praise. You see, that's a living thing, isn't it? To God continually, that is, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to His name, that's sacrifices. And He says, but to do good and to communicate. The word communicate means to give. Communication as far as the, uh, to the missionary work, as far as to the things of God. Forget not, for with such sacrifices God is well pleased. This is the way the Christian presents himself as a living sacrifice. He gives himself in thanks. He thanks God for every blessing. He appreciates it so much that he's willing to share, even in the material things that God has given him, share it with others, and especially so to the work of the Lord. Because Paul says, you did communicate with me in my affliction. And he spoke of the Philippians being faithful. And he said, because they had, and he said, no other church has communicated with me as concerning giving and receiving, but ye only. And because of it, what did he say to those Philippians? Because you have communicated with me concerning giving and receiving, because you have supplied all my needs till, to the place that I have all and abound, he says, my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Sometimes we quote that scripture as if every believer, regardless of his condition, regardless of his fellowship and communion, regardless of whether he uh, gives in the things of God or whether he's a tightwad, or whether he is uh, withholding from the Lord, we quote that scripture as if God is going to take care of everybody on the same basis. That's not true. Paul gave that to those that were communicating to him as concerning giving and receiving. And he says to them, But my God, you have given of what you have. I have all in abound. I'm thankful for your offerings. You supplied my wants and my needs. And he says, but my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. You see that? Now then, you can read the context and see. And if you look at the lives of Christian people, you'll find those that give more and that, uh, that give their tithes and that are willing to share and communicate of the material blessings and the financial blessings that God has bestowed upon them, they're the ones that God blesses more in that same particular way. And you can look around and you'll find that the fellow that will not, he's a Christian, but he says, I'm not going to give the Lord his tithe, I'm not going to give, give 
any of my money, and they become tightwads, and they won't uh, share with uh, what God has blessed them with, and they won't honor the Word because the, the Bible tells us to give, and it shall be given to us, good measure pressed down, shaken together, and running over. And the person that gives, he will be blessed, but the person that does not, you'll find that he's always complaining about not having anything. And Paul says, I have more and I abound. We, you and I can say that tonight. If you give to the things of God, you can say God has taken care of you. I've never found a Christian yet that gave unto the Lord's work that would, would, would have to say he hasn't taken care of me. But every ch- child of God, every Christian that, that really gives from his heart and gives faithfully and consistently, regardless of how many problems arise, he, he'll have problems, just we all do. Because the Bible teaches that we're all subject to temptations and trials. We all have expenses that are uh, unforeseen. We do not see these things coming. But during the midst of it all, God will some way open up a door and take care of us. And if we will give ourselves to him and give to him, as he has said, present our bodies a living sacrifice and offer these sacrifices that's spoken of in uh, Hebrews chapter 13, we'll... Never be able to say, I've given in the Lord's work, but he hasn't taken care of me. I've never heard a Christian say that yet. You find one and let me know. I've never heard one say that. But you'll find them say that God has taken care of them. Their testimony will be that that God has uh, supplied my needs. And that's why Paul said to the uh, Philippians, My God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. And I believe that this is a very uh, great test of faith. And if we'll enter the picture there, and if we'll actually do that, we'll find that God is faithful in, in taking care of us. He says that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. Now notice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. <clears throat> and it says, and be not conformed. Okay, that's fine, Tracy, thank you. Let's read verse 2. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So we not only have in verse 1 the sacrifice of the believer, but in verse 2 it says the separation of the believer. Be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed. Notice two things here. We're not to conform with this world. But that's just the negative side. Be not conformed to this world. We'll find people as Christians, they'll say, well, I'm not conformed to this world. But are they transformed? Here's the positive side. Uh, The same word is transfigured, that Jesus was transfigured before them, and his face did shine as the sun, and his raiment was white as the light. So there's not only the negative side, there's things that we're not to do as Christians. We're not to be conformed to this world. Be you not conformed to this world. But he says, be you transformed. We're to be changed, transfigured. And how will this take place? By the renewing of your mind. Our minds are to be thinking upon the things of God. By the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. In other words, we want to do the will of God. Our minds are transformed, transfigured. And our the very inmost being is willing to do the things of God. And we find when people are not only 
not being conformed to the world, but they're being conformed to the things of God or being transformed and renewed, that things really happen, and that is the kind of separation that the Lord wants. He doesn't want us to just turn from the world, but he wants us to turn to him. The Bible speaks of conversion, and Paul speaks of the Thessalonians, how that they turn to God from idols. They turn from something, all right, but they turn to someone. How that you turn from uh, to God from idols to serve the living and the true God. That's what we're talking about. Not just a one-way street. You'll find people that'll say, well, new, we know the new year's coming up, and they'll be making... Uh, New Year's resolutions, and they'll say, I'm not going to do thus and so anymore. Well, that's well and good, but what are you going to do? See, that's the negative side, right? They may say, well, I'm not going to drink anymore. I'm not going to uh, gamble anymore. I'm not going to smoke anymore. I'm not going to do this and that and the other. Well, whatever they say, that's fine and dandy. But listen, on the other hand, what are we going to do? By the grace of God, Paul says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. But we should make a definite effort to uh, be transformed by the renewing of your minds, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Verses 3 through 8, let's read them, and then we'll come back and talk about them. He says, For I say through the grace given to me to every man that is among you, uh, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, according as God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body, and all members have not the same office, so we being many are one body in Christ, and every one members of one of another. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, whether prophecy, let us prophesy according to the proportion of faith. Or ministry, let us wait on our ministering. Or he that teacheth, on teaching, or he that exhorteth on exhortation, or he that giveth, let him do it with simplicity. He that ruleth with diligence, he that showeth mercy with cheerfulness. We find these are special gifts that the Christian has. Various members, various Christians have these uh, gifts that are uh, spoken of here in verses 4 through 8. But verse 3 tells us something, that in all of it, Whatever God has given you to do, he tells you how to handle it, beginning with verse 4. But verse 3 tells us that in any respect, we are not to be overthinking or underthinking, but properly thinking. Notice here, that not, any man is not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. There's overthinking. If a fellow thinks himself to be all of it, and no, no one else, you know, more highly than he ought to think. Then, he, then we find, he says, that he is to think soberly, according as God has dealt to every man the measure of faith. We have the proper or wise thinking given here. But you know, some people have the underthinking that Paul does not mention. And they think themselves not worthy of any blessing or any service, that they can't do anything at all. And there's the middle ground that we're not to do either. We're not only not to think too high of ourselves, but on the other hand, Paul told Timothy, he says, let no man despise thee. He says, be an example of the believer in word and conversation. He says, you preach the word. And he says, let no man despise thee. 
In other words, what he's saying is, Timothy, you are worth something. Don't put yourself too far down. We're not to be too high. We'd be proud and we'd think we're the only one. We're not to let people trample on us and say, well, what you have to say is not worth hearing. Well, maybe a lot of it isn't, but maybe some of it is. So think soberly, Paul says here, according as God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith. Come to a, an even keel. Come to a, to a plain level of thinking. Where you ought to think. You may not think, let's not think we're better than the other fellow, but let's not think that we're to be trampled on by him either. Let's think soberly. Let's think on this middle level to where that we'll know that we're not to boast in ourselves, but we're not to be uh, trampled underfoot either. Think soberly, according as God has dealt to every man the measure of faith. Now then, for this reason, because if we do think soberly and we do not think too highly, then we can minister in the office or, or the uh, gift that God has given us. For as we have many members in one body, verse 4, look at it carefully, and all members have not the same office, so we being many are one body in Christ, and every one members one of another. If you were to take this human body and say, well, we wouldn't want it all arms or all legs or all eyes or all uh, ears, would we? There's ears, there's our uh, mouth and our nose and our our eyes and every member of the body has its particular place and, and function. And so is it with the church. So is it with Christian people that have their gifts. And it says here, having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us. All the gifts that are given to us are according to God's grace. Now look, whether prophecy, let us prophesy according to the proportion of our faith. And this word prophecy does not essentially mean telling of future things, though in the Old Testament most of the time it did. But it means prophesying or preaching as such. And according to the proportion of faith, we're to do it according to the knowledge and the faith that we have and the ability we have to do that. Our ministry this is serving. Let us wait on our ministry. Let us serve in whatever capacity, whatever way that God has enabled you to serve and given you the gift for doing it. And you do it on the basis of verse 3. Not to think of yourself more highly in the service of God, but to think soberly according as God has dealt to every man the measure of faith. To think on that basis when you do minister your gifts. And then it says in verse 8, Are he that exhorteth on exhortation. Haven't you found Christian people in the church that when you're down they can exhort you and say, Well, now, let's, let's do thus and so. I found many a time some of the brethren would exhort me. They'd build you up. They'll lift you up and help you to think positive. Help you to, to feel better about the things of God. And when you think everything's falling apart, they'll show you a way out. And what we ought to do and what we need. Well, thank God for faithful brethren like that. And then it says, He that giveth, let him do it with simplicity. We don't have to sound a trumpet before us, do we? We do it with simplicity. And the word not only simplicity, but some say that liberality is, a, is connected with this. Let him do it liberally. And you'll find passages in Second Corinthians that will show that the giver is to do it liberally. The Bible says that he that soweth sparingly shall reap also sparingly, and he that soweth bountifully shall reap also bountifully. 
But then notice again, it says, He that showeth mercy with cheerfulness. When you're merciful, do it with cheerfulness. Cheer up the folks that you're trying to help. And then in verse 9, we find some other things. Now, all of these things are to be distributed according to the measure of faith that God has given to each and every Christian. So, don't say that you don't have a place of service. All of these, you can find your place in one of these things. And God expects you to fill that place. If you're able to show mercy and do it with simplicity and with cheerfulness, I should say, you ought to do that to some brother or sister. Or It does not necessarily have to be a brother or sister to to all human beings, anyone that you might be able to minister to. And then by your action, by your gift, you may even lead the unsaved to Christ through your uh, gift of service or whatever it may be. But whatever place you fill, you fill it. Fill it humbly. Fill it according as God has dealt to you the measure of faith and do it. And not think that your office is more high and think of yourself more highly than you ought to think, but to think soberly. And all of it's based on verse 3. Down in verse um, 9, we come across the sincerity of the believer. This will show us how we're living. Let love be without dissimulation. Abhor that which is evil. Cleave to that which is good. In other words, let's turn our back upon the evil. And let's hold on, cleave, look at that word, to that which is good. We can tell the difference between evil and good. And certainly, as a Christian, by the Holy Spirit's enlightenment, we can tell the difference. And if we know the difference, then we're to abhor that which is evil. And we're to cleave to that which is good. Verse 10 says, Be kindly affection. Notice this is the sincerity of every Christian, of the believer. Be kindly affection, one to another with brotherly love. You know, I believe Paul is saying some things here that if we'd put into practice and be sincere about as believers, that not only we ourselves would be happier with one another, but that uh, most people could tell the difference in our testimony, in our lives. Be kindly affectioned one to another with brotherly love. And when we begin to manifest that, it's not only going to make a, a difference in our feelings to one another, and it will, without a doubt. When you love someone, you won't be putting them down. You'll be trying to overlook their faults. I have enough for you to overlook. And, and if you really love me, you'll overlook some of my faults and failures. And the same attitude with one another in this that's the same attitude I'll have toward you. And it says, Be kindly affectionate with brotherly love, in honor preferring one another. Honor preferring one another. And then he goes on to say in verse 11, Not slothful in business, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. You know, we're talking about the Lord's business here. We wouldn't be slothful in our business out in the world, would we? Well, certainly we should not be slothful in the business of the Lord, lazy in the things of God. We ought to put ourselves to the task of doing the things that the Lord wants us to do and do it with with zeal and with uh, determination, not slothful in business. He says, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Let's do it with all that we have, not just a part of it. And then it says in verse 12, 
Rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing instant in prayer. Look at the three things here. We rejoice because there's hope. We're to always be rejoicing. Paul says rejoice always. And again I say rejoice. And it says patient in tribulation. We even rejoice in tribulation. I know it's hard for us to do that, but the Bible tells us it ought to be. He says, tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience, and experience hope. Romans chapter 5, you read the first five or six verses. And here he says, patient in tribulation. When there are trials, let's be patient. Let's learn to put things in God's hand and to wait until he brings it, the fruit of it. And when we will, when we do, we'll never be disappointed. Continuing instant in prayer. That means that on the spur of a moment, any time, and we should see the need of prayer at all times, but, but if we don't know what to do, what can we always do? We can always pray about it, can we? If the problem is too great or if the trouble comes that we don't understand, if something happens that upsets us, we can pray. Continuing instant in prayer. And then he says, distributing to the necessity of saints. Let's learn to share with one another. Given to hospitality. What does that mean? means, well, to, to be hospitable to one another, given to hospitality. Paul, in instructing Timothy and Titus concerning deacons and elders, he says that they're to be uh, given to hospitality. Have you ever seen uh, some fellows that want everything coming in and they don't want to share or give anything? Everything, selfish about everything. We ought to be hospitable to one another. And that's what it's talking about. And then... It says, bless them which persecute you, bless and curse not. Look, bless them. There are people that do persecute you, and when they do, are you to curse them? No, you're to bless. And that's hard to do too, isn't it? We have that old human nature that that boils up and we say, well, we just can't do that. We're going to do different. Rejoice with them that do rejoice and weep with them that weep. We have the ability, by the grace of God only, to sympathize with those that are in trouble, to weep with them, and also to be happy when other people are happy. 